All right, well, it seems we are streaming live. It's been a while. And of course, it's telling me that my stream is not reaching a certain destination. A destination could not be started. Click here for details. Let's see what's going on. Oh, yeah, I forgot. I forgot about the Rumble channel there. Because we're streaming live on several platforms. Uh, our Added Souls Facebook page. Um, where else? Twitter. YouTube, and um, yeah, on Rumble, but I forgot to put in the coordinates for the Rumble channel, so we'll have to do that tomorrow, if anything. I'll just upload this video. It's been a while. It's been about a month, I think, or perhaps three weeks or therein. A lot of transition uh, time over here at the Maya household, you know, and so that's why. If you want to know all the details, go over to my personal profile on Facebook, where I am. Uh, Pretty much share some stuff over there and also over at addedsouls.locals.com. You can check that out. I certainly encourage you to sign up over there. You can support the work over there. There's also the PayPal option and uh, various other ways. You can reach out to me. We can have ourselves a video chat, conversation on the phone, whatever works. Today we want to look at Matthew, or not Matthew, John, the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Because I've not been able to upload these past weeks and whatnot in regards to our sermon sessions on Sunday, I figure on this day, themed, of course, Monday's podcast session, Sermon Sunday, that we will go into John chapter 18 and look at verse 1 through verse 27, and that would bring us up to date with the things uh, taking place, because we've been going through the Gospel of John, and that's what's been taking place there, so... It's good to have you over here, Early Bird Podcast Session. Stefan Maillet is my name. AddedSouls.com is the website. AddedSouls.locals.com is the location you want to sign up. I also now have a Substack profile and share some weekly articles. And my podcast will certainly be uploaded over there. So check that stuff out. John chapter 18 verses one and following. I'll be putting that on the screen for those of you watching with um, the audio, or not the audio, the visual, I should say. And uh, I'll just get into it, shall we? Yeah, all right. Let me see here. Just want to make sure everything's operational. Yeah, it seems to be. So when Jesus had spoken these things, right, that's how it opens up in chapter 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, not things, words, important, words, not things, words, words. What words? In context, well, chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17, where information was delivered to his apostles, his disciples, minus the betrayer, Judas Iscariot, of course. He had gone to his way, his own way, to betray the Christ and facilitate the apprehension of Jesus, our Lord and Master, for the fulfillment of murder on that cross. When Jesus had spoken these words, which words? The words he spoke to his apostles in chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17. He went forth with his disciples, over the ravine of the Kidron. Interesting information, of course, geographically located. We have ourselves a stream of water there, a location in which 
he would be found often with his disciples, and it is indeed a uh, contribution to his teachings as the water of life. Interesting, isn't it? Where there was a garden, a picturesque location of peace and tranquility, here the Christ is found and was found often with his disciples, Judas included, in which he entered with his disciples. There it is, chapter 18, verse 1. Stick around, follow along. This gets interesting. Now, Judas also, of course, verse 2 says, who was betraying him. Imagine that is indeed your description in the scriptures, the name with the association, a betrayer, betraying Jesus, not just anyone, the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the Savior of mankind. He was your best friend. He loved you. You were within the inner circle of blessings. You had his doctrine. You had his provisions. You had all goal and purpose. And this is the man you choose to betray? Well, Judas had a heart filled with greed and jealousy and bitterness and things in which contaminated him. And he could not, or did not, if I should be accurate, he did not, through his free will, choose to control that temptation and remove himself from falling into those temptations. No, he rushed headlong, and sadly, he fell and burst wide open with his innards splattering all over the place in such a fitting end for a betrayer, the one Jesus would say has the greater sin. Why? The consequence. How so? He should have known better. Judas should have known better. He walked with the Christ. Yeah, look. Keep your finger in John chapter 18 and go over to Acts chapter 1, where the description of Judas once again is revealed by the penmanship of the Holy Spirit. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled. Verse 16, chapter 1 in Acts. The scripture had to be fulfilled. After he spoke these words, chapter 18 of John, verse 1, it's about the scripture, it's about the word. And Judas, of course is a fulfillment of that scripture. Now, Judas had free will and could have chose to repent, choose to change his worldview and the very sinful practices that had plagued his motive and his agenda. He could have changed. Would there have been another individual to betray the Christ? Certainly. Out of free will? Absolutely. Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. How sad of an individual that he would go through this process and betray his best friend, and not only his best friend, but the Savior of mankind, for he was counted among us. He was saved. He was a follower of the Christ. He had been given all the uh, opportunities and blessings of a disciple. The forgiveness of sins, first and foremost in priority, for that is of first importance. He had been given this freely given gift for he was counted among us and received his share in, his, in this ministry. 
Now this man acquired a field with the price of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his intestines gushed out. Again, a fitting picture for what took place there. And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, verse 19, chapter 1 of Acts, so that in their own language, that field was called Hacheldama, that is, field of blood. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that properly or not, but there it is anyways. So, yeah, the descriptive nature penned down by the Holy Spirit of Judas Iscariot, a betrayer. Back to chapter 18 in John. This is fun. This is interesting. This teaches us, challenges us, and allows us to know the inner proceedings and context of the Christ, our Lord and Master, in his final hour. Chapter 18, verse 2, Now Judas also, who was betraying him, he is in the action of betrayal. The verb, of course, expressing the oomph of his betrayal. For Jesus had often met there with his disciples, the location in which peace and tranquility and doctrine and challenge were found, all things good with the Christ following him as a disciple, therein the location of betrayal, now fully active. Quite the uh, devastating sorrow. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, uh, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Yeah, see there, verse 3. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort, number one, there is a body of security and enforcement for the Roman government, and officers from the chief priest and the Pharisees, therein the Sanhedrin and its influence, its sociopolitical corruption in full view, came there with lanterns and torches, it's in the night, of course, and weapons ready to apprehend a well-known criminal, right? Interesting as well, since the Jews, the Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin and its influence sought to create Christ in their own image to pull up a sword and defeat, overthrow the Roman power and oppression so that they could build this physical kingdom in Jerusalem and enforce the Jewish law and Judaism. <coughs> I just sneezed. Please forgive me. I know that's illegal nowadays, right? All right. So... Here we have ourselves an opposition in now coalition and cooperation for the main cause. We must remove Jesus from our existence. We just can't have him around. He's bad for our business, right? Okay, so now <laughs> foes have become friends. Roman cohort officers and the chief priests and the Pharisees, well, they came with their lanterns and torches to see what they were going to do. And what was it that they were going to do? Apprehend the Christ through deception, of course, and betrayal, needing Judas. Oh, they were just waiting for someone like Judas. Someone who was weak, who was easily manipulated and flattered, easily recruited, devoured for their purpose, and there he is, reared his ugly head, and they, of course, took advantage of that immediately and sought to apprehend Jesus, to dispose of him, if you will, the Messiah. And he is always in control. Who? Jesus. Never at any time was the devil in control or the Roman power or the Jewish corruption 
any time were they in control. No, Jesus was always in control and keeping things orderly in the fulfillment of his will. We move on to verse 4, and it says, quoting, So Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he is in control, he is well aware, he's been briefed, right? He knows what's taking place. He went forth and said to them, who? Well, the Roman cohort, the chief priests, the Pharisees, and of course Judas would have been in the midst, in the location where Judas would have been the recipient of many blessings. He knows what's taking place. He says, whom do you seek? Is it because Jesus has no idea what's going on? He's kind of confused and seeking some answers? No, of course not. Anytime God asks a question, it's not because he is void of the answer. It's for our benefit. It was for their learning, if they were paying attention, of course, to what he is saying. Whom do you seek? Perhaps speaking to Judas, saying, what reason is it that you are seeking me out and betraying me? And that is indeed a powerful question. Here you are. You know who you're looking for. Me. Why? Why is it that you are seeking me? What's the purpose? What's the motive? What is driving your passion which such fleshly desires as to remove me from this earth, to have me falsely uh, accused of all sorts of nonsense that is simply not true. I mean, they call Jesus a liar, a thief, a deceiver, a blasphemer, you name it, they called him. They called him the devil himself. Why are you doing this, Judas? Why do you want to do this to me? Have I not provided for you? Did you not have the forgiveness of sins? The hope of a great many eternal things were you not provided for? Did you lack food, shelter, and clothing? Why are you doing this to me? Look inside your mind. Why are you doing what you are doing? And that, of course, is in practical application to our faith this day. Who are we truly? And why do we do the things we do if Christ is the head of the household and his words governing our thoughts, then we live in accordance to his will, his testament, his instruction, his command, his examples. If not, why? What has taken over our thoughts? Lawlessness? Judas allowed those things to take over his mind and betraying his friend. And that's so sad. Truly, it is. And some of us know that wisdom. We've gone through it. So it continues and says in verse 5, They answered him, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am he, the first of several, in which he will reveal, of course, his authority. If they be paying attention, I am. Who is I am? <laughs> Take off your sandals. The ground you walk on is holy. The burning bush, of course, I am. The great I am, the Son, the Son, of course, the Christ, I am. And he was, he's always been, he is now and will forevermore be. Before Abraham was, I am. Correct? Well, of course, I am, he says. And Judas also, who was betraying him, the verse says in 5, was standing with who? Them. Be careful who you're standing with. There's some practical application for you. Psalm chapter 1, verses 1 and following. Be careful who you stand with. 
them or the Christ. If you stand with them, you will be found on the path of sinners, betraying an innocent man, a friend. Friends, got to be careful with that kind of stuff. I am, he says, and Judas is there, of course, standing with them. Verse 6, so when he said to them, I am, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. They drew back and fell to the ground. All knees shall bow. The presence and power and authority of Christ and his words, of course, is enough to make all men seek the ground in reverence or in fear, depending on the matter of the heart at that moment. And they would have known who this man is. They would have heard and seen and witnessed the power of his word, the power of his uh, abilities, raising the dead, casting out demons, controlling the weather, making whole the lame, curing the sick, and knowing the inner thoughts of man in a measurement none of us can attain. They would have known who this man was. And of course, they did. And when he spoke, well, they fell to the ground. And they recognized him as Jesus the Nazarene. And that is the, descripti the descriptive nature of the Christ in the Gospels, of course, known as that. So they would have sought to identify him in that way. And you can see that all throughout the scriptures. Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Nazarene. So when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, he again asked them. So now they are in his submissive uh, um, apprehension. The table has turned. They think they're going there to apprehend them. They will ultimately, of course. But Christ, proving the point that he's always in control, he has great supernatural power, and he has the power and authority of his voice. They themselves have said, who is this? They stood amazed. No one spoke like that. There are scribes and Pharisees, and the Sanhedrin didn't speak like that. He spoke with authority. And so, again, he says, I am. And he will repeat that numerous times, of course. So then, so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore, verse 7, he again asked them, whom do you seek? I'm giving you another opportunity here to soak in the moment. Why are you doing what you are doing? You know me. I am Jesus the Nazarene. I am Jesus of Nazareth in which you describe. I am God. And he might have, again, been specifically trying to pierce Judas and his uh, one-time disciple, of course, now withdrawn and isolated against him, um, sadly. Therefore, he again asked, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus the Nazarene. Not the Son of God, no? You're not seeking the Son of God? No. No, they weren't interested in knowing what he taught, his doctrine, his life, his ministry, who he was. Inherently, as he defended his equality to the Father, he was deity, he was God on earth, the prophesied coming king. No, they're not seeking that. They're seeking the sociopolitical standard name that was given to him in description. He's Jesus the Nazarene, Jesus of Nazareth. Has anything good come out of Nazareth, right? So Jesus answers them, of course, in verse 8, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these go their way. Who? 
my disciples interesting. In the hour of active betrayal against him, the hour in which he must go to the cross and the process therein facilitating that moment, his heart, his fulfillment for his disciples' safety. They need to move forward after him, don't they? Certainly, to become the recipients of the poured out power of the Holy Spirit, all recorded in Acts chapter 1 and 2, of course. They need preservation. Their expiration has not yet come. And Christ holds authority. Though the devil is thinking himself victorious at this moment, yes, I was able to infiltrate his circle through Judas, and you be careful. Christians, brethren, you be careful who you make friends with. That is a principle, of course, that is alive and well in the world, and they know it. The heathen know this principle, but we Christians, there are some who creep in unnoticed into the church and will infiltrate your life and take great stride in time to infiltrate your thoughts and the way you think and the words you speak. Brethren, in which Paul, the apostle, would have spoken to Mark in a void in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, 18 and following. You be careful with who you make friends with, even in the church. That is why we are wise to understand the discipline that is instructed to us in the local assembly because of the little leaven will live in the whole lump. Correct? Of course. Now, moving forward again, I told you that I am he, so if you seek me, let these go their way. You want me. You don't want them. These aren't the droids you're looking for. <laughs> All right? Jesus using the force there, and of course, he's in control. Always. And to fulfill the word which he spoke, of course, verse 9, of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. I lost not one. Interesting. Again, he's in control. He is fulfilling the scripture. He is allowing this moment to take place. And he moves forward. Simon Peter then, of course, having a sword in verse 10, seeks to defend his friend from the apprehension and the injustice that he can clearly witness. And this is not the first time Peter, of course, would act in courage to defend his friend. One who, of course, proving himself outwardly in faith. Well, I'm going to defend the Christ. He spoke those words to Jesus. Did he not? I'm not going to allow you to be apprehended and murdered. What are you talking about? And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Who? Peter will know the temptation, of course. You think Jesus wanted to go through with this pain? Like he is experiencing humanity after all. He's in a human flesh and he was tempted in all things like you and I. He, he can sense the fear and the pain to come. He knows what's going to happen. Of course, it's a tempting thing to hear from your best friend. Don't do it, man. I won't allow you to do it. Get behind me, Satan. You're tempting me not to go through with this plan of salvation. I have to die. It is an objective, absolute reality of my ministry. I must go to that cross, and you're tempting me not to do so, Peter. Get behind me, man. Don't, don't do that. Well, Peter's mind, of course, as a uh, labor brute, a fisherman, a tough guy, right? 
Rough around the edges, no doubt. His friend's talking about he's going to be taken away and murdered. Well, I'm not going to let that happen. You want a friend like Peter, trust me. Well, of course, in his ignorance, he was unaware that he was trying to hinder the plan of salvation. He wouldn't be able to do so, of course. Jesus is in control, but Jesus is trying to teach him something. So in this moment, of course, Peter, out of courage, man, he swings out that sword. It's a sword, right? It would have been a Roman sword, not a dagger, not small, not full length, as you would commonly see in like, I don't know, uh, the barbarian or uh, samurai uh, sword, uh, but more so of a perfectly crafted weapon of uh, warfare for the Roman uh, elite or the Roman soldier, not elite, the Roman soldier. And here, Peter, remember, they were told to have swords for self-defense on the road to their evangelistic missions. And he has this sword and he's pulling it out of his sheath and he's swinging it to behead this individual. He wants to protect Jesus and he's ready to die for it. He said so, didn't he? I'll die for it. I'm gonna, I'm, my life, man, is in your hands. I'm going to die for this cause. You're my friend. I'm not going to let you be apprehended by these crooked, corrupt, sociopolitical uh, endeavors uh, the, from, from these powers and principles that are oppressing us and taking you away. I'm not going to allow that to happen. He takes out his sword. Time to time to uh, go to war with this, right? So Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. So Peter's aiming for the, for the neck, man. He wants to behead. Malchus is diving back, sees what's taking place in self-defense, in an act of uh, uh, backing his way in, in, a, in a fashion that would allow him to, uh, how should I say, miss allow uh, his actions, his bodily actions would have um, allowed him to miss uh, the full brunt of that sword and, of course, uh, perish there, be murdered there, or killed, if we should be accurate to the descriptive words. But he tilts in a way, and he still gets caught with his ear. His ear flies. Lost your ear, man. And his name, of course, was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put the sword into the sheath. Now, you, you have to respect this account. Jesus is in control. You have yourself with the Roman cohort, chief priests and the Pharisees here. They outnumber the situation, obviously, in this isolated location. And uh, they are there to apprehend Jesus. Yet Jesus always has the authority of word and he is in control, allowing things to take place. Peter does this. Jesus says, put the sword into the sheath. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Peter, again, are you trying to fight against God the Father? And the redemptive plan of salvation for mankind that was set through me, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Son of God, and Peter knew he was the son of God because Jesus had asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're, you're the son of God. Peter knows he's willing to give up his life, and that indeed is an act of courage that could have cost him his life right there and then. But yet Jesus, with his authority, says, Peter, why are you getting in the way of my sacrifice? I have to go there. I have to die. 
It's an honorable act of courage, of course, to try and defend a friend, even to death, if you must give up your life to protect your friend. Peter was not in sin for self-defense, contrary to some brethren who are more so loyal to their own political affiliates and policies than they are to the word of God. Peter was not in sin for self-defense or trying to save his friend from, of course, something quite corrupt, but rather the depth of spiritual importance, eternal importance, was at play here. And Peter, (laughs) in his ignorance, was getting in the way. Peter, you can't do that. The Father has set me forth for this mission, and I must fulfill it. If you, yourself, Peter, seek to be with me eternally one day. Interesting indeed. And now we move forward in the text to verse 12, where Jesus will be before the priest. Isn't this interesting? By all means, friends, subscribe, sign up, follow, like, share, comment, all that kind of good stuff helps this content move forward for those of us who truly find interest in the Word of God, inspired words. AddedSouls.com is my website. AddedSouls.locals.com is the location you can sign up and support this work for the studio to grow and our influence to reach further. Please consider doing that. There is also PayPal for donations, AddedSouls at gmail.com. And you can reach out to me. We can have ourselves a video chat, phone conversation, email exchange, whatever is necessary. That good? Okay, verse 12, chapter 18, John. So the Roman cohort, the Roman cohort, and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. (laughs) On what charges, right? Well, that's what they do. So they are organized to this end, facilitated by the active betrayal of Judas. And he led him, they, of course, and led him, uh, well, okay, regroup, rethink, back to the verse 12. The Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, verse 13 there. And it also displays, of course, the lineage and ancestral connection to corruption within the sociopolitical oppression of the day, the Sanhedrin, and it would have been also known among the pagan and the heathen, the Greek, the the Gentile, the Romans. Corruption tends to breed, if you will, within a family unit, and it grows ancestry, and it finds itself in political pockets. We see that today over here in Canada, over in Ottawa, and you see it also in Washington, over in America, where certain families, and I won't name the names, who perhaps are in power right now, uh, have deep lineage of corruption stemming back decades and decades, and they take their time with it. And if you're not part of that party, well, I'm afraid it's tough luck for you. Well, it would have been the same, of course, display here. In the first century, the Roman oppression and power would have set forth Annas as the chief priest, Caiaphas to come afterwards, yet understanding that Annas was probably the final word there, the final say in what would be happening. And they needed, of course, the Roman power to achieve this goal, which was to remove Jesus. Yeah, they needed the Roman power. Remember, peace in Rome, Rome and its policies were set forth to keep the peace. Let's keep the Jews quiet doing what they're doing so that there's no turmoil or protest or 
any need to cause unease here uh, with the community. So they needed the Roman power, which had, of course, the policy of capital punishment. But they needed to prove the case. All these things, of course, taking place within the corruption of this ancestry. So they led Jesus to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas, verse 14, was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. Of course, reminiscing here back to the motive and description of that man's heart. Simon, verse 15, and it cuts that way. John wrote it in such a fashion. It's quite different in the synoptic gospels, but over here in John and his pen, a man inspired by the outpour power of the Holy Spirit, of course, chose to insert Peter within this context as well, within the storyline, along with the proceedings of the Christ, Jesus, our Lord and Master. And we must understand that what is taking place here is unlawful, according to Jewish uh, policy. They weren't supposed to be doing the, way, the things they were doing to Jesus. This is like a preliminary process before the courtroom, and they are doing things and asking things that they should have no permission for. And Jesus knows that because Jesus is a lawful man. He was born and raised within the covenant of Jewish, the Jewish system as a Jew. And he understood the law. He never broke the law, despite the accusations of the Sanhedrin that he was a lawbreaker. He was certainly not. They were. And they were projecting. And that is indeed, sadly, the spirit of those who are self-righteous hypocrites. They are the same today. They creep in unnoticed into the church, and they are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are everything you can read described in the first century, which is rebuked. You'll find them in the church today. You must be able to discern the difference between the Diotrophic and the Demetrius. Well, here they are, of course, doing things that are lawless in order to achieve their fleshly desire to remove Jesus. And so the proceedings, of course, are corrupted. So, it goes now back to Peter and his account and witness through the pen John wrote with, and it's interesting how he interchanges the flow of the account from Jesus and his proceedings, which are corrupt, to Peter and what Peter is going through and doing. And I will have a different perspective to share with you moving along in regards to what Peter is doing and why. It's a matter of opinion. I may be wrong. However, it is customly taught traditionally in the church a certain way, and it struck me while reading and studying the account a different perspective that still, of course, uh, never violates or breaches the doctrine, but we'll get into that. Let's see. Verse 15, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple, and that other disciple, if we are reasoning together through various locations of scripture would probably hint to John himself, the writer. There are, of course, scholarly uh, um, endeavors that seek to say that uh, it wouldn't be John, it would be someone else, but um, I think it's safe to say it would be John, who would be the other disciple. So here you have Peter and John, right? Now, that disciple, John, was known to the high priest. Aha, there was a connection there. There was some influence there. He had some connections, if you will. John had connections to the high priest, and he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. He would have been permitted to do so because of his connection. It could have been some, uh, um, how should I say, 
it's deeper than acquaintance. The word know in this verse 15, it holds behind the word the understanding of a greater depth of relationship than just an acquaintance. So John would have had personal uh, association with these here uh, individuals and the high priest in particular. And he entered with Jesus because of that connection. He would have been permitted to do so. Uh, the court of the high priest. But Peter, verse 16, interesting. But Peter was standing at the door outside. Now, Peter doesn't have that connection. So the other disciple, John, who was known to the high priest, again, there's a deeper meaning there. There's a connection in the family that is known, that is not only of a surface acquaintance, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper. So John's influence and his connection to these individuals is strong enough that he can go speak to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. Why is Peter there? Well, he's curious, of course. He's the same man who told Jesus, I won't allow it. I'll die for you. I'll die. I'm ready to die. I don't want you to go through these things you're talking about. I don't want you to be apprehended and murdered. I don't, no, 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 no. I'm not going to allow that to happen. And you can see everything to Peter is Jesus. He, Jesus is Peter's life. Jesus is the one who's educated me. Jesus is the one who's teaching me how to live and think and speak, do things the right way. Jesus is the one giving me food, shelter, and clothing. Jesus forgave me of my sins. I've seen Jesus for who he is. He is the Son of God. Oh, God I'm going to do everything I can to stop this man from being falsely tried. This is the same Peter. Of course he's curious. He wants to know what's going on with his friend. He wants to stop anything that would hurt him. He wants to be close. So, John and his influence allows Peter to get in there. So the slave girl, in verse 17, who kept the door, said to Peter, Interesting, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Now that, of course, question facilitates an easy, tempted delivery for Peter to say, No, I'm not. I'm not that. No, I'm not. You know, it's just not. She didn't ask, Is Jesus the Son of God? She said, are you one of his disciples? But she says it in a way that facilitates his easily, his easily given de uh, delivery, which is no, which is a denial, of course, and they're in the sin. Well, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Like you weren't found with him, were you, right? Because John, he has influence. You just told me you can get in here with him. So I'm assuming you're not like a disciple of this man named Jesus, right? Oh, no, 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 I'm not, no. Peter's curious. He wants to go inside. He wants to know what's taking place there. He's ready to die for his master. I mean, he took out a sword and wanted to behead a man to save Jesus. I mean, he's ready to die. He's courageous, isn't he? In his ignorance, mind you. And he continues in that ignorance, sadly, here, as he lies and denies his association to Jesus. Now, he was probably in a frenzy. His anxiety's up. He's obviously shaken by what's taking place. If he would have been self-controlled of the situation and his mind, he could have, of course, spoken a bit more with that uh, question. Well, what do you mean by disciple? What do you call a disciple? A follower? Well, many people follow Jesus. Not only those who love him, but many follow him who hate him. So what do you mean exactly? Well, were you around with him? Yeah, we were there, obviously. I'm not going to lie. I was there in the garden with him, obviously. We were all there. Can I go in now? 
uh, yeah, you can go in. See, no need for denial, no need for a lie. You're in control of the conversation. Now you're in. And you can see what's taking place, which is lawlessness. Because they didn't have the right through Jewish policy to go through the things they were going through in the, in the way they were doing it. So here's Peter. And he does this, right? He's um, denying his association when he could have, again, had self-control to talk his way in. In a rightful way, in a decent way. Legal way. But he doesn't. Okay, so now the slaves and the officers in verse 18 standing there, having made a charcoal fire. It's cold outside. It's the night. It's dark out there. For it was cold and they were warming themselves. And Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. He's there. He's cold as well. So he's getting close to the fire. But he wants to know what's taking place. He wants to be within the inner circles of conversation his friend's there. He's ready to die for his friend. He's proven that. He said it, and he's proved it in action. Peter don't want Jesus to be apprehended or murdered or anything. He's the son of God. Peter said that. And upon this rock, I shall build my church. Remember, Jesus was telling Peter, upon the confession of truth, which is that I am the son of God, upon, upon this foundation, that I am the son of God, the Christ, I'm going to build my church upon that very truth. Remember when Peter said, you're the son of God? Okay, so here's Peter. Verse 19, the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Now we switch back through John's pen to the proceedings, the preliminary proceedings, which again are illegal. This is not right. They shouldn't be doing that. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples. Shouldn't be doing that. And about his teaching. And again, we must understand something here. The accuser is the one who must provide the evidence to the accusation. If someone tells you, prove to me there is a God, you know he is speaking words of lawlessness. God exists. We know that. You're the one accusing him of non-existence. So you are the one who has to provide the evidence that God does not exist. Jesus is a betrayer. He is a thief. Jesus is a blasphemer. A deceiver. No, you have to provide evidence to that end. You have to provide evidence to that. And never believe someone who just says so. Look at the evidence. They are, prov they, they are coming forth with accusations. Where is the evidence? Just saying so won't make it so. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples, about his teaching. Do you think he's truly concerned about his disciples and his teachings, really? No, not at all. Not at all. Nope, has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that Jesus is authentic and real and genuine. He is the Messiah. And he had supernatural power to confirm his word in which they didn't. And they didn't like that at all. They had lost influence and sway and control over the minds of the people because of this man. Their self-righteous hypocrisy was being attacked, exposed. Their greed. You see, they were gatekeepers, were they not? 
You needed them to know what the scriptures taught, and you needed them to know what the law was. See, they were in control. They could condemn you. They could push you out. They could take your money. And Jesus came to liberate the minds of the people against that nonsense. Be like, hey, you don't need to follow them. You just need to follow me. They are oppressing tyrants. They are diatrophic brutes. They are pharisaical uh, dictators. You don't need them. You just need God through me. They didn't like that one bit, did they? Jesus told them they were lost. How dare he say such a thing? They were of the ancestral lineage back to Abraham. They were the Jewish leadership. They knew the Bible. They were scholars. They were educated. Jesus was not part of their school of thought. Well, they sought to murder him, get rid of him. You still see that today. Oh, yeah. I've not been in the church 40 years, but I've been in here about 12 now, faithful. And I've seen all these things happen before my eyes, and I've witnessed it, and I've been uh, the recipient of these kinds. They are true and real. They are accusers. They are slanderers. And they project everything. <laughs> They're accusing Jesus of being guilty of the very things they practice. They are the deceivers and the blasphemers. They are the thieves and the robbers. They are the wolves in sheep's clothing. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching, as if he cares about those things. It's not about that at all. If it would have been, the situation would have not have come forth. Yet the scriptures were going to be fulfilled. Jesus answers him, of course. Verse 20. I have spoken openly to the world. You are here asking me about my disciples, <laughs> about my teachings. Everything you need to know about that has been displayed publicly for the past three years. Nothing's been in secrecy, and there's a difference between secrecy and privacy. Privacy is a good thing. Secrecy and whispers and gossips, oh, that's a different ballgame. We've entered the realm of lawlessness, the very thing, of course, the Sanhedrin was guilty of in their hypocrisy. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus says. I always taught in synagogues, locations in which religious individuals were found, and in the temple, where all the Jews come together, and I spoke nothing in secret. What are you asking me for? Go ask everyone. They've heard me. The crowds have heard me. If someone approaches you and says, well, I've heard him say to me privately, no, you know that's a lie. When it came to the gospel truth in which it was proclaimed, it was public, the crowds knew it, and that is indeed, again, a practical application to our faith and example. We must be public with our faith. We have no shame. We here, the East Coast Church of Christ, we produce our faith outwardly. For what is within produces its way outwardly, and it is public knowledge everywhere. It's on social media. It's out there in the public physically. Our faith. That's why you see renewals and baptisms and what we teach and what we believe and how we are in fellowship together and our unity and our peace. And all of this is public. You want to know what we teach? You want to know whom we follow? It's public knowledge. It's transparent. It's upright. Be careful of those who live behind the shadows and secrecy. The Diotrephes, who has taken preeminence and controls his congregation, what they're allowed to say and do and 
Be careful. They are out there. They exist. Jesus is telling them, I've spoken openly to the world. If someone approaches you, what approaches that? Well, Jesus told me this here in secrecy. No, you can know that person's a liar. I've spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Verse 21, Jesus says, is it because he don't know the answer? Well, of course he knows the answer. And why is he asking that question? Pay attention now. Because they are doing things in a lawless way. These preliminary proceedings are not permitted through Jewish law. Yet they are here and doing it falsely against the Christ. And he knows that. So he says, why do you question me? You don't have the right to do that. And where's the evidence to your accusations? Question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. It's public knowledge. You don't even have the right to ask me this, by the way. But since you have, by all means, go to the crowds, go to the people, what we have been teaching, who my disciples are. And to the contrast, very sad, Peter, in the very same way, in the same context, is denying his affiliation with the Christ, his best friend. Why? For his motive, of course, which is curiosity and courage in a misguided way. But here's Jesus saying to those before him, hey, listen, question those who have heard what I spoke to them. They know what I said. Now, when he had said this, of course, in verse 22, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus. And the word and the idea behind it could have been, of course, a, a baton of sorts, a stick, a, uh, and various things. But I think it is more understood within the context as a open-handed slap in the face, a rebuke of sorts, a slap in the face, which, again, I don't know which is worse. It would not have been produced in a fashion to cause him severe bodily affliction, but rather to a rebuke, like how dare you say that, or how dare you ask that question, right? And he says this, he says, is that the way you answer the high priest? Oh, these kind of individuals, man, <laughs> they're so puffed up with pride. They're so puffed up with pride. They exist in the church today, they creep in unnoticed, don't mistake it, prideful brutes, and sadly most of them call themselves evangelists and gospel preachers, and you can see them on their podcast with their bold-faced lies and slander and their demeanor and their heavy-handed uh, actions to condemn everyone and all that kind of nonsense. So here he's being struck. Jesus is being struck in the face, open-handed slap in the face, if you will. Is that the way you answer the high priest? Well, Jesus answers him and says, if I have spoken wrongly, again, Jesus is always according to the law. If I have spoken wrongly, Testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? If I have done or said something that is lawless, provide the evidence for it. If not, then why on earth am I now the recipient of this consequence? Why would you slap me in the face? What have I done wrong, basically? Injustice, of course. And in verse 24, so Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Fine, I can't find anything wrong with this individual, so we're going to send him off here. And of course, now the narrative and its witness changes to Peter's denial of Jesus once again. So you see how this break in the flow, but it's not an accident, obviously. The Holy Spirit said it in such a way that John wrote it 
in, in the manner for us to understand. Here's Jesus in this lawless location speaking lawful things. Peter, while this is happening, his motive might have been governed for the safety of his friend and the curiosity of his thought. And we were taught traditionally, always, that Peter is now producing an act of cowardice. That's how a great many brethren we love and respect wrote their commentaries, and a great many preachers have preached and teachers have taught. Peter is became a coward here. He didn't want to get apprehended, and he didn't want to be the recipient of the consequences that were coming upon Jesus, so he just, as a coward, fearful for his life, denies Jesus. Now, I have no problem with that, obviously. It's an interpretation that does not corrupt the doctrine of Christ and the teaching taking place. There is an undeniable fact. Peter denied Jesus, and we're not, we're not arguing that. My perspective and interpretation to the text, which lends my opinion, again, it's an opinion, and I, as I was reading, I was looking at the description and character of Peter. Peter was a courageous man. He often put his foot in his mouth, obviously, but look at who he is and who he was and what he lived through and what he is doing in his profession, his career, and just, it, it, it doesn't seem to match the flow of his character that all of a sudden he's now a coward. I'm not saying it's not possible when you're faced with that moment, you may have a fear you didn't know you had in you, like, oh man, this is real, I don't want to go through this. Now, that's a possibility, and there's a there's good reason why scholarly brethren teach it that way, and I, it's not a problem for me. And I've always thought it that way, and I've preached it that way. But throughout this week, I was reading it and reading it, and it just doesn't make sense to me. It's just not as logical in my mind that Peter all of a sudden became a coward. The man sought to behead another individual to save his friend, and now all of a sudden, within the hour, he's just now a coward? There's no denying the fact that he's guilty of a sin, and it's a severe one. Denial of the Messiah, his friend Jesus, is, is, is lawlessness. It's a severe sin. There's no doubt about that. But the motive in which he was doing it, which doesn't make it right, by the way, I think is different. In my opinion, his motive was not cowardice. It was more so curiosity and courage to try to just know what's going on with his friend and try to save his friend. Maybe there's a way to get him out of this bind. So there it is. That's what I think. Makes more sense to me anyways. So Simon Peter was standing and warning, warming himself, and they said to him, you are not also one of his disciples, are you? Again, the question gives a platform in which Peter is easily tempted into his answer. You are not also one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. You weren't there, were you? Oh, no, 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 I wasn't. No, I wasn't. Verse 26 now. <laughs> one of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off. Remember Malchus? The man Peter tried to kill? Well, wouldn't you know it, he has a relative there. Oh, man, don't you hate that when you walk into a place and you see an individual like, oh, man, he had to be there. 
Man, he's never going to let that go. <laughs> this individual must have been, could have been, bitter against Peter, obviously. Being like, hey man, that was one of my family members you did that too. <laughs> His question is a bit more accurate, isn't it? Not like the two other questions, which pretty much led to Peter's temptation being fulfilled. It's like, you weren't there with him, were you? You're not one of his, right? No, no, I'm not. Oh, okay, yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> not this guy. <laughs> no, no, no. One of the slaves of the high priest, being a relative of the one whose ear Peter cut off, said, Did I not see you in the garden with him? I mean, how are you going to, you know, there's no way around this one. But of course, Peter denies it again. What is he going to say? Well, he says no. Immediately a rooster crowed. And in another account, it would, it would reveal that Jesus was looking at Peter and Peter at Jesus when this took place. A rooster crowed. And he was reminded that he denied Jesus. He had allowed his curiosity, his misguided courage, um, to get the best of him in a way that led him into a denial of his Lord and Master. Uh, sometimes the motive of our heart might seem right in our own thoughts, but if they produce an act of lawlessness that would deny our Lord and Master, friends, that's a, that's a, a very um, serious offense, right? And Peter knew that. And I assure you, Peter lived the rest of his life hearing roosters remind him <laughs> of this very moment in which he wept bitterly, but he repented and he was indeed an upright instrument of God's uh, plan. And he was there standing up with his fellow apostles on the day of Pentecost, proclaiming the death, burial, resurrection, witness, and ascension of the Christ. He was there and he had the keys, the conditions. They all did. The apostles, of course. They had the conditions necessary for the people to become legal citizens of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the church belonging to Jesus Christ. So Peter then denied it again in this account here in verse 27, chapter 18, John. And uh, we'll finish there. That brings us up to par with our uh, uh, sermon sessions in the gospel of John. And we can understand uh, the importance of this information, can we not? Certainly. And how Jesus, though going through, if you will, these very uh, devastating moments, being betrayed by a best friend, having another best friend deny him, um, Jesus loved them. Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved the Sanhedrin, the, his brethren, his culture, his people. Um, and he died for those who, who were murdering him. He died so that an opportunity could be delivered for them to be saved by him. And you and I today are certainly blessed to have that opportunity. You and I today, if we believe in Jesus, uh, we can have eternal life. John 3.16, right? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him well, don't need to perish, right? Can have eternal life. Certainly. 
That's why we must follow our Lord and Master. Right? We must trust in Him. We must seek Him to have our sins washed away. We call on His name as repentant believers, confessing Him as our Lord and Master, the Son of God. We qualify, if you will, to call on His name and to be immersed, buried, right? Plunged, dipped, immersed, baptized into Christ. We seek legal citizenry into Christ, His church, the location of the saved, have our sins washed away, Acts 22, 16, to be clothed with Him, Galatians 3, 26 and 27, takes faith. Takes faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we cannot meritoriously earn our salvation. We must have full trust in Jesus Christ. We call on His name as we qualify to become children of His, and we are immersed, baptized, buried with Him. Romans 6, 3 and 4, Mark 16, 16, 1 Peter 3, 21. Speaking of Peter, Peter spoke it quite plainly in 1 Peter 3, 21. The water doesn't save you. The individual helping you go down into the water, he can't save you. Jesus saves you. But you have to go to his tomb. You have to go there with him so that we can die with him and be raised with him. It's the power of his resurrection. They're in the hope and the invitation to anyone paying attention to this information, inspired information. Reach out to us if you'd like to study further, man. EastCoastChurchOfChrist.com You can also find us on Facebook, East Coast Church of Christ. Stefan Maia is my name. AddedSouls.com is the website. Please consider supporting this work. You can do so over at AddedSouls.Locals.com It's free to sign up and you can choose to support monthly. There is no amount too low or too high. Everything's available and transparent. We can have a conversation. It supports the Added Souls ministry, the podcast, the studio, through the Maya family, and the mission we are involved with as we labor alongside the East Coast Church of Christ over here in New Brunswick, Canada. Isn't that a wonderful thing? I think so. All right, man. I appreciate you all a great deal. This session comes to its end. Stay focused and stay positive. Like, share, comment. Hopefully more people will want to tap into this kind of stuff. We go live from Monday to Friday. Check out the itiner itinerary. 10 a.m. Atlantic Daylight Time. Peace out.